going to be looking at 2 Kings 23, verses 3 through 8, and we'll have a study, and we'll have an application, and then I'll take your questions. Uh, 2 Kings 23, beginning with verse 3, and going on through verse 8 of 2 Kings 23. Then the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people took their stand for the covenant. The king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, the priests of the second order, and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the articles that were made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. Then he removed the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense on the high places in the cities of Judah and in the places all around Jerusalem, and those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun, to the moon, to the constellations, and to all the host of heaven. And he brought out the wooden image from the house of the Lord to the brook Kidron outside Jerusalem, burned it at the brook Kidron and ground it to ashes, and threw its ashes on the graves of the common people. Then he turned down the ritual booths of the perverted persons that were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the wooden image. And he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba. Also, he broke down the high places of the gates, which were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were to the left of the city gate. Let's pray together. Glorious Heavenly Father, we take to heart the timelessness of Scripture. In truth, there were various customs of ancient biblical times which are no longer really pertinent to us. And yet the schemes, the paganism of human beings is still very much with us. And the ongoing struggle against sin externally and internally is all too relevant as well. Gracious Father, we pray that you would impress upon us today uh, the reality of cultural strife, the inescapable reality of political struggle and turmoil, and the necessity of Jesus Christ being acknowledged and embraced as Lord and Savior. We thank you for him. We pray this all in a strong and perfect name. Amen. And we all know the obvious that both Josiah and Hezekiah had close personal relationships with God. They were both passionate reformers. 
And they were loath to privatize the faith. They publicized the true faith and the true God. They, they wanted the kingdom of Judah and the city of Jerusalem to be godly. And the name Josiah means the Lord supports. And the Lord supports. And certainly the sovereign God supported Josiah in his efforts to enact reform. In a previous lesson, we noted that at a young age, Josiah already understood that there were spiritual problems in the land and there was spiritual degradation in the land of Judah. And last time we spent some of the lesson detailing the fact that Josiah was a godly individual. He was tender-hearted. He was sensitive to the things of God. He was committed to God. And here in chapter 23, specific reforms were enacted by him. Verse 4 and following, we read about the purging of pagan articles of worship. The purging of pagan articles from the house of the Lord, especially those employed in Baal worship and in the worship of Asherah, the consort uh, of Baal. Observe these articles of false worship were burned outside Jerusalem. They were so profane, they were so repugnant to Josiah that they were taken outside the city limits and destroyed outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron. Now the Nelson Study Bible offers this note. Articles of pagan worship had been taken to the fields of Kidron in the reforms of Asa and Hezekiah. And so this is not the first time this sort of thing took place. Carrying the remaining ashes of burned religious articles to Bethel was a bold condemnation of both the pagan religious rites and the place associated with them. I'm going to read that again. Carrying the remaining ashes of burned religious articles all the way to Bethel was a bold condemnation of both the pagan religious rites and the place associated with them. And so both the ritualistic practices and the actual location were desecrated, formally repudiated and condemned under the rule of Josiah. According to verse 6, wooden image in the house of the Lord was ground to ashes. And this, of course, brings to mind Exodus chapter 32, the incident of the golden calf being constructed, set up, and worshipped by the peoples while Moses was away from the people on the mountain. And in Exodus chapter 32, verse 20, when Moses came down, saw what was going on. He was overcome with indignation and righteous anger. In Exodus 32, verse 20, indignant Moses took the golden calf. He burned it. He ground it to powder and he made the Israelites drink it. In 2 Kings 23, the Asherah image was ground to ashes. Pulverized. Not just broken in half, but pulverized. 
ground ashes. Also in verse 7, Josiah tore down the ritual booths of perverted persons or sodomites, as some translations have it. Homosexual prostitution was taking place. Right? Also, in verse 7, uh, we learn about women who evidently wove hangings for uh, Asherah, the wooden image of Asherah, vestments which would adorn Asherah. And so we have here, there, there were women who actually labored uh, and took pride in decorating this false Canaanite deity in the house of the Lord. That's, that's unthinkable. And then in verse 8, we read of desecration of high places where incense was offered, almost always to pagan deities. In the end of verse 5, makes reference to those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun, to the moon, to the constellations, to all the hosts of heaven, to the, to the stars. Yeah. And so we have here in verse 8, the high places burning incense themselves uh, being defiled. Now, it's true that defilement of sacred places can occur when forbidden practices are performed there. But here, it's important to note that the defilement is suitable. The defilement is good in terms of false worship being curtailed or prevented, uh, or done away with altogether. That's a good kind of defilement. When, when a pagan religious practice is defiled, or desecrated, that's actually a good thing as far as God is concerned. Extinguishing false worship is a good thing and was a top priority for Josiah throughout the course of his reign. And we observe that the true priests of God were reassembled in Jerusalem after having done activities in other cities of Judah. And so what we have here in verses 3 through 8 and Later on, subsequent verses, of course, Josiah made sweeping reforms and he enacted massive changes. And through it all, he was totally devoted to the honor of God. And the reforms extended beyond the confines of Jerusalem. This was expansive, it was substantial, it was intentional. Um, uh, with calculated enthusiasm and discipline and resolve, Josiah intended to do all this for the glory of God, and he didn't conceal his passion at all. Motivated by the truths of God, his rule was God-centered. He was sold out to the glory of Almighty God, unlike many politicians in this country today. And again, the word politics, not in Scripture, and yet the reality in the theme of political activities, governing activities, is inescapable as we read through Scripture. Now, politics, at one time, was humorously defined by Robin Williams, 
who said poly means many and ticks refer to blood-sucking creatures, so politics means many blood-sucking creatures. That's how Robin Williams took In actuality, though, the word politics, which is uh, from largely from the Latin, medieval Latin, uh, speaks of city affairs, affairs of the city. If you break down the word politics, that's what it really means. Uh, Webster's Dictionary defines politics as, quote, the art or science of government, of guiding or influencing governmental policy, or of winning and holding control over a government. So politics, in actuality, is the art or the science of government. And certainly the Old Testament kings and rulers, and we read about this first, second Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, over and over again we read about how these kings, how these rulers influenced governmental policy uh, in activities, whether good or bad. Uh, political influence, political intrigue, very much occurred throughout biblical times as well as today. We read about politically motivated assassinations and conspiracies, alliances, coalitions between rulers and nations, and so forth. And in this ancient period, Josiah stands out as a genuine man of God, consistently godly and integrity. He had passion, motivated to do, do the right thing in the sight of God. And unlike some political leaders currently who claim to take God seriously, they claim to be godly, and yet they endorse evil. Uh, Turn to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, here in Titus chapter 1, we have a group being depicted in uncomplimentary terms, a group known as Cretans. And we bear in mind that Paul here in Titus chapter 1, he's coaching Titus, he's advising Titus. Uh, but along with that, uh, Titus being in Crete, Paul is led by the Holy Spirit of God to talk about this group called the Cretans. And in Titus chapter 1, uh, beginning with verse 12 and going on to verse 16, we read these words. And one of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. 
There are people in our time that claim to know God. But by their actions, they deny God or they're so ungodly that they give a bad meaning to the term Christian. If the example of Josiah communicates anything, it's the fact that Josiah himself was a godly man. And he practiced what he preached and he's consistent. He had integrity. He exemplified the truth of Jesus' words in Luke chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Josiah learned from the word of God a portion of Deuteronomy that had been found containing the curses of God upon the disobedience of the people of God. When Josiah heard that, and when that was read to him, when he became aware of that, his response was a godly one. It was one of godly fear. He responded with a commitment to God to try and undo the damage that had been done by leaders before him. And of course, this raises the issue of legislating morality. And periodically, when something is proposed that certain people don't like, they say, you're trying to legislate morality. But the fact is that morality very much is legislated by those in power, those wielding power. And in Kings and Chronicles, we see patterns of leadership, uh, of government, uh, which legislates or mandates particular policy, public policy, uh, a moral or an immoral agenda for a population to follow. There's no real neutrality. Very little governance is, in fact, neutral. (laughs) Uh, Leadership gravitates toward a moral or immoral perspective uh, one way or another godly decisions or ungodly decisions. So a leader's rule, a governing official's rule, uh, is characterized either by morality or immorality, by good or evil, by godly or ungodly decisions. Uh, It's logical. 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 7, and that Josiah tore down the booths of perverted persons. Now, at least it seems to me, perverted persons call the shots in much public policy in our country today. So I have a few proverbs for you that embody principles, listing principles for society and the reaction of populations or the effect of these policies upon people in the population. Proverbs 11 verse 10, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there is jubilation. Proverbs 28 verse 12, when the righteous rejoice, there is great glory, but when the wicked arise, men hide themselves. Likewise, verse 28 of Proverbs 28, 
When the wicked arise, men hide themselves, but when they perish, the righteous increase. Proverbs 29, verse 2, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, but when a wicked man rules, the people groan. And many Americans today are groaning because of wicked economic and cultural platforms ruthlessly promoted by people in power. And in Scripture, sinful societies and wicked cultures are condemned by God. What we know about individuals being targeted in Scripture uh, from the judgment of God, but but culture and human society, uh, these are not let off the hook either. And so Scripture talks in collective terms about groups of persons. So I want to read some Scriptures that deal with that, uh, very straightforwardly deal with it. The first is Zephaniah chapter 2, Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. This is right after Habakkuk. Uh, We have Zephaniah, Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 of Zephaniah 2. And the scripture reads as follows. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Surely Moab shall be like Sodom, and the people of Ammon like Gomorrah, overrun with weeds and salt pits in a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall plunder them, and the remnant of my people shall possess them. This they shall have for their pride, because they have reproached and made arrogant threats against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome to them, for he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. People shall worship him, each one from his place, indeed all the shores of the nations. Now this is what they're going to get for all their pride, all their mockery of the people of God. Uh, going to be devastation. Amos, Amos chapter 2, beginning with verse 6, which talks about economic inequities and sexual misdeeds and so forth. Amos chapter 2, beginning with verse 6 and going on up to verse 16 of Amos chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor, and pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down by every altar on clothes taken in pledge and drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was as strong as the oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites, 
Is it not so, O you children of Israel, says the Lord? But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink, in command of the prophet, saying, Do not prophesy. Behold, I am weighed down by you, as a cart full of sheaves is weighed down. Therefore flight shall perish from the swift, the strong shall not strengthen his power, nor shall the mighty deliver himself. He shall not stand who handles the bow, the swift of foot shall not escape, nor shall he who rides a horse deliver himself. The most courageous men of might shall flee naked in that day, says the Lord. And so here we don't have an individual leader that's spelled out and focused upon. But we have the society as a whole, which has become so depraved, it is more than entitled to the wrath of God upon it. Now, take a look in Revelation chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verses 2 through 8, Revelation 18. Now, as you, as you know, all kinds of speculations about what this group called Babylon is. Many believe that it has at least a partial reference, partial fulfillment in the Roman Empire that, that is, is emblematic of the Roman persecution of Christians. Others say, you know, it's largely indicative of large cities throughout history which tend to uh, focus their hostility against the people of Christ. And then still others say this is a pattern of gradual increase of wicked empires and coalitions of nations uh, that will culminate shortly before Jesus comes again. We're not going to delve into all that this morning, but notice the the language which unmistakably rebukes Babylon for its hostility against the truth of God and the people of Christ. Revelation chapter 18, beginning with verse 2, talking about this angel. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great has fallen, has fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. And the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. And then drop down to verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. When we're talking about this society, this culture, which is so pagan and which is violent in their persecution of the people of Christ. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. It's obvious, not just to Christians, but 
to anyone with even a, an elementary grasp of, of decency and appreciation for heritage that our present government and the culture that goes along with it is characterized by much evil and that American leadership is largely wicked or at the very best it cannot be trusted and the very best and that what is legislated is being perceived not just by Christians but by other groups of Americans as being immoral. Immorality is being legislated with a vengeance and people groups are being persecuted or at least maligned and pressured to conform to the evil which is being promoted relentlessly. And anyone remotely conservative is portrayed as selfish or crazy or bad for society. Furthermore, the mainstream media is not our friend, and the mainstream media and many American politicians propagate a leftist agenda whereby all Americans will, it is hoped, eventually be manipulated, controlled, and brainwashed. Uh, the left, this is as basic as I can make it. The left doesn't love all people. The left loves to bully people and to have its way. And what is called a democracy by many in our current presidential administration is a code name for blanket tyranny and silencing all opposition. And thus, immorality and persecution are politically and aggressively, at times brutally, legislated by those with an anti-Christian agenda. Now, a couple of months ago, when the Freedom Convoy was in full swing in Canada, uh, I listened to several, yeah, I watched several, Jordan Peterson videos <laughs> in connection with that. And Jordan Peterson, he's a Canadian, he's a professor of philosophy, very intelligent man. And, and Jordan Peterson, in one of his videos said, there are two trademarks, two features of postmodernism. That's the framework that he specifically dealt with uh, in one of his videos. And he said there, there are two things that stand out when talking about the people who are postmodern in their thinking. Number one, they're ungrateful. Their, their mindset, according to Peterson, is there's nothing to be thankful for because the history of all Western nations is, is plagued by uh, a horrible heritage of oppression and exploitation. There's there's nothing good about any of it, and therefore there's nothing to be thankful for. Okay, that's one feature. Second thing Peterson mentioned is they're unwilling to listen. And he specifically uh, spent several minutes, maybe more than several, talking about Justin Trudeau. <laughs> <laughs> he said, when, when someone is authentically postmodern in their thinking, only they are right. 
And no amount of logic, no amount of reasoning, no, no amount of, of argumentation is going to sway them from their thinking because those who disagree with them come from a standpoint of oppressiveness or historical exploitation. So anyone who advances an argument counter the one that a postmodernist is in favor of is not to be taken seriously and never to be listened to. So, as Peterson said, that framework, that mentality, that perspective is very rigid and closed-minded. Touts itself as being open-minded, but in practical reality, it's very rigid and closed-minded. And what I would add to that is that postmodernists and postmodern ideologies are obsessed with practical atheism deny the supernatural. Uh, it's all about what supposed utopia we can craft and establish for the world. Psalm 10 verse 4 came to my mind. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. If you're talking about leftist ideology, I cannot think of a better more accurate depiction of that. God is in none of his thoughts. And God gives peace to his people, and therefore, those who are postmodern in their ideology are always upset. Isaiah 48, verse 22, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. That's a timeless reality. No peace for the wicked. Not for them or for those around them. And yet, for all this, we take to heart that the enemies of God will not finally win the day. They will be dealt with by God. The tables will be turned. And of course, we are to pray for their conversion. With God, all things are possible. Uh, God changed Paul from being a persecutor of the church to being a friend of Jesus Christ a sinner saved by him. No, but God, all things are possible. So we're to pray for their conversion, for God to open their eyes, and but we do so with the assurance that God will deal with them if they do not repent. God deals with societies, and God will deal with individuals. There will be no loophole to hide behind, no, no scheme that will protect wicked in the day of judgment. And God will deal with those who perpetuate sin, those who lead by a sinful example, but they won't have to answer to God. No getting around that. So I want to share with you something we talked about extensively in one of our Sunday night Acts study, Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 31 of Acts chapter 17. And Paul is talking to a very pluralistic audience in Athens. He's talking to the Athenians, very pluralistic people. And he's talking about this altar with an inscription to an unknown God. That's the backdrop. And beginning with verse 24 back 17, we read this. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, 
does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord and the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world. In righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Uh, you know, we have articulated there very powerfully uh, the non-negotiable truth of the faith that God will judge by way of the Lord Jesus Christ the crucified and risen Savior. And that nothing is going to prevent that from happening. He's appointed a day on which he'll judge the entire world in righteousness. By way of the Lord Jesus Christ. One more thing. I want to conclude with this. There's something mentioned before. I want to revisit this now. If a society undergoes spiritual renewal. Revival. If that happens. Like the Great Awakening. Howard's been reading from George Whitfield and, and the Wesleys. Wednesday nights. Uh, if there is that kind of a pouring out of God's spirit, if, if a population does repent and embrace righteousness uh, throughout a nation, that nation will be spared. In Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, speaks to that. Jeremiah chapter 18, 1 through 18, we had the imagery of the potter and the clay. In Jeremiah 18, beginning with verse 1, Scripture reads this way. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So we made it again into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up Hold down and destroy it if that nation against whom I have spoken 
turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And certainly we recall the city of Nineveh, the book of Jonah that was categorized for wrath when people believed God. They mourned over their sin. And the Lord did not bring upon that society the disaster, the calamity that He had threatened. So America does have hope. Possible for the Lord to engineer a mighty revival a great appreciation for the truths of God and the gospel of Christ. God can do it. And we are to pray that God will do it once again, that God will raise up another Josiah and people like him. I will take your questions now.